Let's open our study of God's Word in a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, again, we commit this time to you, thanking you for all you've done through us in Christ. We pray now for wisdom, for illumination, for understanding in a uh, very difficult text, but we trust your guidance. You will reveal uh, everything that you intend to for the good of your church, uh, whom you love and whom you sent your Son to redeem. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, in, in uh, light of the, the wonky timeline here, just want to preface my sermon with this. If I have to stop suddenly, it's because it's uh, 11.40. So that was, the, that was the time I was given. So we'll try to get through as much as we can today and uh, leave the rest up to God's providence. Our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, getting into a new section, verses 7 through 11 is the overall text. Please follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as the story goes, I've been unable to confirm its veracity, but as the story goes, in about A.D. 130, the emperor Hadrian had just completed building his wall, Hadrian's Wall. If you've ever been up to that uh, part of England, you will see the remnants of Hadrian's Wall. Part of it is still there. It uh, separated Roman territory, it was really a mark of Roman sovereignty, from what we now know as the territory of Scotland. Been to Scotland, beautiful land, beautiful country up there. But there is an old saying that when Hadrian completed his wall, he stood on the south side of it, and turning to his soldiers, he said, this will keep those barbarians out. And on the other side of the wall, the north side, a couple of men there stood, and one turned to his friend looking at the wall and said, have you ever seen so many free bricks? The importance there. Perspective, vision, mindset. What matters is how each respective person on each side of the wall saw things. So if you were in the south, you saw it as a mark of territory, but you were keeping some undesirables out. And to those on the other side, they saw opportunity based on a particular perspective. They saw, wow, free building materials. Even today, you will find huts across Hadrian's wall that, has, that have utilized these bricks. That was meant to keep them out. On one side, you see a fortress, right? You see an impenetrable barrier. On the other side, you simply see an opportunity to build. You see cracks in the wall. And I think much of that perspective really defines the Christian's perspective today, especially in light of the increasing marginalization by an unbelieving society. We have the mind of Christ. We have a biblical vision. We see opportunity where an unbelieving society sees an opportunity of shutting the Christian voice down as keeping us from preaching the gospel whether that comes through intimidation or even 
by making new laws. And what we want to prevent is the church is keeping this marginalization, marginalization, keeping this cancel culture and the rejection of biblical Christianity from giving us a skewed or what we could call a Roman perspective. We don't want to see things the, Ro- the way the Romans do. We don't want to see the church as somehow locked out of being able to influence what is going on in our own country. We don't want to see ourselves as being locked out, as having no voice, as in an irreversible, irredeemable situation where the church will have no ultimate lasting impact on society. So instead of seeing what man is doing with the law, we want to be able to keep seeing what Christ is doing with grace in spite of the fact that severe persecution may be just around the corner. And though it may be, in some ways I'm counting on it, that this will be the case. But we do not take that to mean that the church is somehow unable to mount an effective offensive against principalities and powers and to cast down all ungodly arguments that array themselves against the knowledge of Christ. We are not to see persecution and affliction as somehow rendering the church incapable of contending against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. No, we say, in fact, though the forces of evil assail us, we see this as a timely opportunity, as timely as any in redemptive history, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the nations, of course, starting in our own culture, starting in our own backyard. And so, as 1 Peter goes, we come to what we could call the fourth block, the fourth section, the fourth theme. The first is salvation, the foundation of true grace. The second is submission, the footing, or the, the footing of true grace. Thirdly, we went over last Lord's Day, was security, the fortress of true grace. Great to keep that in mind as you stand against affliction. And the fourth comes off of that. These themes are connected. We will call verses 7-11, through 11, however short, the theme I believe is very outstanding. We will call this steadfastness, the flame of true grace. That is, the church is to endure. The church is to remain standing. The church is to persevere as a city on a hill. A light that never goes out, shining the beacon of hope that is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I think we can all rally around that. That come what may, we are to remain steadfast, committed to the work that is before us, and not to think that it is somehow a fool's errand. In spite of how apparently bad things may be, we encounter this theme often, this matter often in the book of 1 Peter. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. And he says this verse against the backdrop of the the saving gospel as well as Christ's ultimate victory over everything. He says, Therefore, my beloved, brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Does this sound like some kind of defeatist, nihilistic attitude to you? That the church is always going to have its back up against the wall and always be on the defensive? Not at all. Verse 58 is written in light of this amazing victory that we will see over death itself. That death will be destroyed in a most profound fashion. So he says in light of that, and that promise of course extends to us, be firm, immovable, always excelling 
in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain, that what we do in the Lord is not worthless. It will bear fruit. It will have a sure impact. Listen to Galatians 6.9, let us not become discouraged in doing good, which surely can happen in times of persecution. That discouragement is a real thing we contend against. But he says this, for in due time, what is due time? When the Lord wills, at the appropriate season, we will reap if we do not become weary. See, that's the rub though. Do not become weary. Be steadfast. Stand. Do not lie down and roll over and die. Stand knowing that you live. Stand knowing that Christ stands with you. Very timely. Time approaching more severe persecution, especially that of Nero. It seems that Peter is writing this letter in about AD 62, AD 63, just a couple of years at the most before Nero takes the stage as Roman emperor. So, of course, the counsel that he gives the churches in Asia Minor are going to be well equipped and well encouraged. It's a very important time to receive this kind of instruction. We don't want the church scattered. We don't want the church clueless. We don't want the church engaging in some kind of mindless hysteria because they don't know what to do when that affliction comes. And there's another issue in addition to this that we will get into. So Peter tells them this, the end of all things is near. And then he gives this most important instruction. So helpful for us. So let's set the context. Context of this is, is very important. And as we've been going through this passage, especially in 1 Peter chapter 3, 3, we've noticed that there are some difficult texts. This is no exception, especially the beginning of this passage. But the context, I believe, is very key to how we behave as believers. So verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near. So again, from our perspective, we want to look at this text because it helps us remain steadfast in times of great affliction and great challenge. So he says, the end of all things is near. So how is that for an intro? Be steadfast, right? Be committed, persevere. The end of all things is near. It would sound like a contradiction until we actually understand what Peter is pointing us to. So he says, what, what is it? That's the question. What is the end of all things? What is the end of all things? We have to remember that this passage is connected to the previous one, previous passage. We read, again at the end of uh, chapter 3, that Jesus Christ has been, He's died, He's been resurrected, He's at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. And then at the beginning of verse 4, we're reminded of Christ's suffering and how we too will suffer And yet at the same time, we live a life that is counter-cultural. We are not doing the things that we once did when we were apart from Christ. We find in verse 5, very importantly, and this helps us establish the context, in chapter 4, verse 5, they will give account to Him, these ones who do not know Christ, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So even now, keep this in mind, even now at this present time, Christ stands ready as judge. Remember, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. All judgment has been handed over to him. These are present realities, not merely future expectations. He stands ready to judge. For the gospel has, been, has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Okay, so we know what's going on there. So then he says, well, in light of this, in light of Christ's current ruler, r- rule and judging work, the end of all things 
is near. So what this verse tells us is that everything will be judged in reference to the resurrected Christ. And that this current judgment that Peter talks about in the previous passage is near, as it were, because the resurrection of Christ has already taken place. So we understand the context of the end of all things and its nearness in reference to the resurrection of Christ. That's why it is near, is because Christ has risen and stands in place as Lord and Savior and Judge. So more than likely, the end, as Peter is describing it, is not representing a particular point in time. Sometimes we do that. We read the end of something, you know, the, the end of our road trip, right? The end of school, the end of, the end of life. Typically, we think of a terminating point, right? But I believe that in the, in the context, the end is not talking about a termination of time, but rather a period of time, right? A whole period of time. The end is also not to be understood as the end of the world. I don't believe what Peter has in view is some kind of a rapture or even the second coming. There's also another uh, interpretation which puts forth that the, the end of all things is, that, is also talking about the sacking of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Remember, that's about, about seven, six years away from the point of this writing. That is significant and they're actually, it actually relates to our understanding of this passage, but it's not limited to that but it definitely has an impact. And even Jesus said that this generation right, will be alive to witness these things, will, will be alive to witness the fall of Jerusalem. So based on the teachings of Jesus, the churches are well aware of the impending doom of Jerusalem. But I do not, do not think that that is exactly what Peter is pointing us to, especially when we read this passage carefully. So the word for end here is the Greek telos, which speaks more, more to the last stage of a process, right? A period of time. That's what we're dealing with here. A stage, rather than it does a particular, singular, sudden end point in time. We would also say, if, this is, if Peter is strictly speaking to the second coming, and he's saying, hey, this is upon us, this is close, because remember, the audience. He is talking to... The church, he is talking to them in the, in the present tense, the here and now. And he's saying, this relates to you. This relates to your present experience. So what I am telling you about the end of all things relates to you. So the second coming hasn't happened yet. That's the point of, of pointing that out. So if Peter means that, then simply said, Peter's wrong. So those two things are not exactly what Peter has in store, what he has in view. He is talking about a part, the fulfillment of a particular goal. The telos, the fulfillment, the, the end goal. He's talking about the last stage of a process and the outcome or the goal of that process. So what Peter is describing here is the end or the last stage of God's redemptive plan via the new covenant that was established in Christ's blood. So he's giving us the full picture, that full stage of the new covenant ministry that was established in Christ and is currently being executed by the Holy Spirit. So that's what the text has to do with us. It's, we don't limit it to the first century, but it's not speaking of uh, the sacking of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 per se, nor is it talking about the second coming. 
But that does not mean it doesn't relate to us. I would say this interpretation means it relates to us all the more because we are persevering in, a ver- in, in the very same stage or situation that the first century church is. So the end of all, so the end of all things represents this, go- this stage, this whole stage of new covenant gospel ministry. Even now we could say that the resurrected Christ is through the pro- proclamation of the gospel. He is judging the nations. He is redeeming men. So nothing about Peter's statement is accurate or misleading. He says telos because he is exemplifying the fact that, that what is going on is a goal that is being currently achieved through the ministry of the church. And we take part in that as much today as the first century church. And we are to hold one another accountable to be involved in that, to be invested in it, to commit ourselves to it, to remain steadfast in it. I mean, we are riding the coattails right now of 2,000 years of New Covenant ministry, of faithful ministry, of faithful Gospel proclamation. So rather than, being plan- rather than planning on being taken out of here, no, we, we, we plan to stay, we plan to keep our hand to the plow and continue to do this work. And so Peter is giving the church some very pointed, very plain instruction as to how that works itself out. As to how the church is to conduct itself in this last stage, in this telos. You think about Scripture's themes too. When you, when you read about the end of something, the, the end is almost never a total end. A, a termination, as it were. Think about the flood. The goal reached, the telos, was that the sins of man was ju- were judged and then through Noah, man has a clean start, right? He says, the end of all flesh has come before me, right? Yes, the end, but that re- represented a particular goal. And then Noah exited the ark, and there was a fresh start, be fruitful and multiply, exercise dominion over this world. See, there was a goal reached, and it continued. Life continued. Think about the captivity. Israel would be disciplined, but would be returned to the land ultimately. They were vomited out of the land for idolatry and other things but the Lord was faithful and returned them to the land. Think about even the cross, the ultimate telos, right? Even Jesus uses that word. It has been finished. The goal has been reached. The new covenant was established in His blood. Sins were paid for. It was indeed finished, but it was not over. We find that out most clearly through the resurrection. New life, right? New, the beginning of the new humanity. It wasn't over. Even for personal salvation, we die to sin and yet we are born again as new creations in Christ to walk in newness of life. Think about it even in marriage. The goal of no longer being single, right? You rejoice at the death of your singleness. You get married, become one flesh with your spouse, and you embark on a new life together. It's wonderful. But there has been a goal achieved. Even at the end of time, the Lord Himself says, see, I make all things new. It's not the end as we normally think of it. It's simply a pathway to a new beginning. Think about it in, uh, in literature. In Return of the King, once the ring has been deposited into Mount Doom, and uh, Frodo and Sam are in there, Frodo says this, he says, For the quest is achieved, and now is all over. I am glad you are here with me, here at the end of all things. Sam uses the same phrase, the end of all things. But what do we know based on that wonderful story? 
Yeah, it's the end. The ring's been destroyed. Sauron has been vanquished. And the sh- but the shadow has been removed from Middle-earth. New life has come in. A new kingdom. Newness is there. Justice has returned. Right. It's not the end as we normally think of it. Listen to what Karen Jobes concludes. Peter wants his readers to live in light of the reality he has just asserted in 4.7, that everything is coming to its final outcome as judged by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Nothing and no one is exempt from the redemptive process that will bring deliverance to some and condemnation to others. So we are living in light of that present reality. What Peter is teaching to the churches here is the same time in which we are living now. We are living in the end of all things. Christ is judging. Christ is delivering. Christ is reconciling all things to Himself. And we are living out the goal right now. It is presently being fulfilled and will reach its consummation when our Lord returns. Now, of course, the difficulty there lies in the fact that many different passages speak of the Lord's return or of of the Lord's coming, and, and one of the things that we have to be diligent to discern between is what that coming represents. Is it the second coming, the consummation of the ages? Is it Christ being present with His church in a particular fashion to discipline or to bless? Is it Christ returning to Jerusalem in judgment? Several passages in Scripture tell us of those things. Think about Philippians 4 or 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near, right? We talk about Hebrews 10, 23-25 where the writer to the Hebrews instructs them to not prevent themselves from gathering together, right? To, to, to consider how they can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Okay. Not to neglect the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, right? But keep, keep meeting together as you see the day drawing near, right? Well, what's the day in question? So I just want to acknowledge that there are particular difficulties and you have to wade through those passages And it's not within our uh, frame of time to do that, but all to say is that the end of all things being nearer, uh, the end of all things have come or they have been near, leads us to believe that this is a present reality, that the end of all things has come upon us. It's occurring right now and it has abiding implications and relevance for the church throughout this entire age. We are watching as gospel witnesses the old order eroding away. And I realize, yeah, it's difficult to see, but we do not rest in what we, we, we read in the news or see on television. We rest in what the truth of God's Word says. And God, God's Word says that this old order of sin, of death, the flesh, the old order is passing away. The world is passing away and its lusts. And so we are living now in this constant tension between the resurrection and the consummation of all things. And Peter says, this is no time to roll over. This is no time to be passive. This is no time to retreat. It's time to stand steadfast and engage and be a faithful minister of the Gospel. It's time that the church takes up that mantle of faithfulness and starts acting like the church. So this is the end of all things. A lot is going to happen. A lot continues to happen. And we are witnesses of it all. But as we live in this tension, Peter gives us some very clear instruction. And so that is what we want to see today is how the end of all things impacts 
the steadfast, the steadfast character of the church? How does the end of all things impact the steadfast character of the church? See, it prevails upon us, right? Even Peter earlier said, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we are to be ready. We are to be prepared. And so Peter tells us how to do it. There are several things at work here. And the first one is this, is that the end of all things spurs us on to a godly attention. Talking about living godly lives together. So the end of all things spurs us on to godly attention, or you could say godly awareness. So look at the end of verse 7 with me. Talk about the end of all things is near. He says, in light of this, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Let's look at that, be of sound judgment. Okay. So the first thing he tells us is, pay attention, right? It's not, now is not the time to relax. Now is not the time to be careless. Be of sound judgment. And now keep in mind, but before we hit all of these things, all of these instructions, remember what is currently happening between persecution, between mountain perse- mounting persecution, as well as the impending doom of Jerusalem, those are things that can cause division. Those are things that can cause the church to lose its focus, to take our attention off of those things which are most pertinent and crucial to faithful gospel ministry. We don't want those things to stir us up or to cause us to lose our judgment or to lose sobriety or to catch us unawares. So that's the first thing we must have is sound judgment. And simply, simply explain this is a person who is in the right frame of mind. Right? Often used in the opposite to describe a person who's under the power of a demon. This is describing one who is reasonable, sensible, who's prudent, who is taking, who is taking all their thoughts in captivity to Christ who is looking at life through the lens of the authority of Christ. I mean, how are you to have sound judgment if you have no standard for what sound judgment is? We are to have sound judgment in reference to the revelation of Scripture. That is the only way the church can be in the right frame of mind. Can think clearly. Can think truthfully. See, we are not under the power of a demon. We are under the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to submit to His direction and wisdom and control. And this is this this follow this this precedes this uh, sober spirit that Peter is talking about to have sound judgment, but to also have a, a sober sober spirit. It is to be self controlled, and they point to essentially the same thing. This is to be in control of one's faculties, all of them: mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. That is to say, and especially today, we don't want to get caught into in some uh, eschatological frenzy or become complacent. You know, we are warned about, that reminds me, we're warned about date setting, right? Becoming obsessed with, oh, when is Jesus going to return? And there's a lot of talk about that. But we know that it is inevitable. But what is the preoccupation of the church? That in the meantime, we are faithfully being about the business of our Father. And that means being of sound judgment and sober spirit. And denoting sobriety as opposed to intoxication, to be self-controlled, to guard our mind, to not, do, to not do anything, whether that is strong drink or the influences of the world, that prevents us from assessing our world in a biblical manner. It is common for Peter to repeat instruction throughout this book. 
In 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 5.8, a few verses ahead, he's going to say, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And this is so timely, guys. Be of sober spirit. Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention. Why are you getting distracted with all these other things, all these other philosophies that do not profit, that do not point people to Christ? We're facing that today. So many things flying around. And all they do is rob us of our attention of the, of the most important things. That is proclaiming Christ. That is walking with one another as the church of being faithful. I mean, how are we able to do any of these things that Peter prescribes if, we don't, if, if, if our mind is in the wrong place? If we, can't, if we fail to pay attention? Think about this next instruction he gives. How are, we, how are we to pray, right? Why do you pay attention? Why do you have a sound mind? The first, thing, the first thing is so that you can orient that mind toward God. You are to be heavenly minded for starters. Because if you don't begin there, you're never going to make any impact on earth. As 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, it says, says, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Let us know what is going on and let us have the frame of mind and wisdom to assess properly the opportunity that lies before us in terms of the Gospel. Remember, when Hadrian built that wall, it was, it was a, a barrier, right? It was, it, was, it was symbolic of Roman authority of who was allowed in the empire. And the church, as it were, is like those two Scotsmen, but we're busting that wall down. We're telling people that Christ has all the authority. You know, again, the, the end of all things, right? That is to say that all things will come under Christ's authority without exception. All powers will be subject to Him, whether in heaven or on earth. And so keeping that clear mindset, we are to engage for the purpose of prayer. We think prayer itself is, whether, even though it's expected to be a normal part and habit of the Christian life, you guys ever notice how difficult that can be? One of the main things Christians struggle with, especially Christian men, is the discipline of prayer. You ask any man, hey, how's your prayer life? More often than not, he'll say somewhere between non-existent and, well, occasionally. But it's not a fixture in his life. Oh, but we are called to be men of prayer. And Peter tells us to be sober so that we are not distracted from prayer. Think about this, though. He's, he, he's telling this to, a, to first century saints. You know what they didn't have? They didn't have television. They didn't have internet. They didn't have smartphones. They didn't have iMacs, iPads, iPhones, or iClouds. But man, we really struggle with it. And you think, well, they had distractions too. They had to, we don't always know what they were, but they had them. And it prevails upon the church to free itself from that noise, from that distraction, from things, as we learned last week, that have no saving or redemptive value or purpose and draw near to God in prayer. Because we have a difficult road. And how can we endure? How can we persevere? How can we remain steadfast if we do not strengthen ourselves and prevail upon the grace of God in prayer? In Luke 18.1, we read this of Jesus. He was telling them a parable to show that at times they ought to pray and not lose heart. How can the church 
restore its courage through prayer. We don't want to be those who lose heart. Even persevering through difficult times in relation to Jerusalem, Luke 21.36, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Here's another one from Colossians 4.2. We see an important purpose of prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Devote, right? Commit. Make it a normal fixture in your life. Keeping alert in it, so even in, even in prayer itself, don't become distracted. And he says this, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Prayer should lead you to be thankful. Prayer should remind you of all that God has given you by His grace and should instill in you a thankful heart. In Jude 20, we read this, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. It's another way we pray. We pray in the Holy Spirit. We pray with His assistance, with His power. We pray in the name of Christ. Prayer is important. I mean, what can we say, especially in times like these? So necessary, so important to draw near to God in the name of Christ. And as His Spirit comes alongside of us and aids us to that end. So that's godly attention. I think we have time for the second one. Christ's return, or I shouldn't say Christ's return, but the end of all things. The end of all things spurs us on to godly affection. So we not only pray, right? We, we are not to live the Christian life in isolation. We practice the one another's. So now, now Peter brings this home. Sort of the, you have the vertical relationship. Now you have the horizontal relationship. Above all, see this is of first importance. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. It's the end of all things is near. So don't be laxed in your love. Don't isolate yourself. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says this earlier in 1 Peter 1.22, since you have in obedience purified your souls from a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You have a sincere love. So, if that's the case, fervently love one another from the heart. And you can say, okay, well, here we are, Christ Church. What, is, what does love have to do with this, right? Love has everything to do with this. A godly, biblical, Christ-like love. This is the most important thing that Peter gives us. Think about how love is treated in Scripture. Love is a, an act of the will. One that submits to God. One that is willing to do whatever He asks. A love that, as we have defined before, seeks the highest good for others and is wholly devoted to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is to invest ourselves. When we love one another, we are making an investment toward godliness and spiritual growth. That is what we are here to do as members of Christ's church. We are to help one another be like Jesus. And that is what love looks like. That is love applied. It is the first fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It is preeminent. And it does whatever it takes, even if it comes through personal sacrifice, to invest itself toward others to seek Christ and to be like Him. To strengthen one another's faith. And as Peter is quick to point out, there's nothing casual about this kind of godly affection. I mean, we, we've, we've heard that you know, post-postmodern lie. Love is love, right? Basically, love is however you interpret it. All kinds of love are equally legitimate. Peter says, no. This is... This, the kind of love we have in view here is a love that is founded in Christ. 
but is shown toward one another. That is fervent. And this word fervent means stretched out. Meaning that it, comes, it can come at a personal cost, right? Love is not easy. Okay. It's like what uh, Tina Turner asked about. What's love got to do with it, right? What's love but a second-hand emotion, right? We've relegated it to that. Some second-hand emotion, something that's not super important, something that can be defined on a whim based on your experience and based on your truth. But no, we are to love one another with Christ-like, redemptive love, fervently, stretched out. It means there may be some pain. There may be, heaven forbid, some discomfort involved. Some inconveniences. Yes, love will stretch you. But that points us just to how important and precious it is. Anything that is key to Christian character is going to stretch you. Again, it's going to rob you of your precious commodities of time and, and comfort. But we are to love one another fervently, passionately, right? Devotedly, because Christ loved us. That is the command He gives the disciples. A new commandment, right? new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. The newness is to love one another sacrificially. We've always been called to love one another, but in this sense, lay, to, to the degree that is necessary, be willing to lay your life down for one another. That's what it takes. And he says, why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is quoting here from the Old Testament, Proverbs 10.12, where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sins. Reading the whole passage in verse 11, it says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So you have here a parallel thought. A righteous act, a wicked act, a wicked act, and then a righteous act. find that often pattern in Hebrew poetry. So the mouth of the wicked, the same one that conceals violence, is the one that speaks hatred. And speaking hatred is to speak in such a way where this one is responding ungraciously and unredemptively towards someone who has wronged him in order to stir up dissension. That characterizes much of society today. You offend them, they seek to destroy you. There is no forgiveness, right? As we say, there is no atonement, there is no salvation in today's prevailing philosophy. If there's no salvation, there's no forgiveness. And that's what this is in view here. When we love one another fervently from the heart because love covers a multitude of sins, we realize that this is the kind of love that is willing to show forgiveness. It is willing to overlook an offense. It is not to say that we never hold people accountable or confront certain patterns of sin. But we love one another to the degree that we are able to overlook petty offenses. We're slow to anger. We're quick to forgive. We're purposeful in our reconciliation with others. We do not permit these things to fester into resentment or animosity toward other Christians. See, that's love fleshed out. It's a call to not be so easily offended, but to seek reconciliation. To seek to show forgiveness and kindness and to continue walking with our Christian brothers and sisters. How counter is that to the prevailing culture? Dragging all the faults out to expose everyone's dirty laundry, especially the sins of the past, into light for all others to see. It's that shame game we read so much about. But Paul tells us, love is patient, love is kind, right? keeps no record of wrong, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. This kind of love, summing up, tells us this, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the love in view. Rather than being 
a people who are easily offended, holding grudges, mistaking intent and assuming the worst. We overlook offenses and we seek fellowship and we seek restoration. To close with a quote from D.A. Carson, he says this, This is the love that breaks the downward spiral of wounded sensibilities, hard feelings, nurtured bitterness, dissension, and vendetta. If the church fails to love, this is me, the whole world will cease to see the link between the church and being Christ's disciples. All we will see is one another's faults will be harsh, ungracious, vindictive, and fail to look at one another redemptively. You know, we sometimes... We talk about what do you look for in a church. I have this conversation often. Oh, we, we do expository preaching verse by verse. And that's often a huge priority with people who are looking for a church. But let me tell you something. As much as I love expository preaching, Jesus did not say, all men will know that you are my disciples by verse by verse preaching. He says, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And let that be fundamental. Let that be of first priority. It's a rough landing, but we will stop there and continue our look into the end of all things next Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for our time in your word. Um, pray that we can meditate on these things and internalize them and know that while the end of all things is, is near, that end simply points to a goal in which we are presently seeing achieved as the gospel is preached and as Christ's kingdom is expanding, as he is breaking down all earthly powers so that all nations will one day bow and worship in reverence of Him. And what a privilege it is to be a part of that. We thank You. We praise You. And although we had to stop quickly today, we pray, Lord, and rest in Your power and wisdom and guidance to apply these precious truths to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.